mist. Thick and organized. Obstinate and layered. Did you hear it come down last night? No, you did not. Because mist works silently and efficiently. It is not clumsy. It does not trip over furniture as it walks into a room or knock your favorite photo of your grandma down the back of a radiator while it is cleaning. As you sit in curtained rooms, you might not even know it has arrived, but it is here and it is all around you, laundering and sparkling the air, dampening the exterior of your house. How much does it weigh? Nobody has ever checked. How could they? Mist does not fit on a set of household scales, but it is heavy. We know that for sure. Mist, not fog, mist, but a particular kind of mist. Not the mist of low fields, burned off efficiently by bright morning sun. The diabolical double-crossing mist of the moor. They tell you not to go out in it. It is said that the little people, the piskies, will use it as their cover as they spin you around and play their tricks on you. Listen hard and you will hear their laughter as it moves around you in circles. Are they behind you? Beneath you? Above you? Turn your pockets inside out, people say, and they will leave you alone. But the piskies will have their fun with you first. You might walk through a gate, then walk on in a strictly linear fashion, not deviating or turning. Then, 40 minutes later, arrive at the same gate. You might meet the same badger on the same walk 13 times, but only if you are lucky. So stay inside where it is safe. Or if you are outside, empty out your pockets. See it as an opportunity. Objects have been accumulating in your pockets for too long. Face the facts. You are never going to use that loyalty card you picked up for Karen's organic farm kitchen at the old arsenic mine. It has been almost seven years now. And what about that strange little triangular object you carry around in there? You're never going to remember what it was originally attached to or need it in the future for anything that will significantly affect the outcome of your life. Take it to the telephone box of lost things and leave it there. Who knows? You might find something to take away while you were there. A pair of vintage drums from the Indian subcontinent or a replacement tap for your bath. Everything is recyclable, even confounding triangular pieces of plastic. This is the very reason why Mrs. Enid Crumley, late wife of the legendary peat cutter Walter William Crumley, originally had the idea for the telephone box of lost things in the year 1784. Enid was an unusually far-sighted lady when it came to matters of environmentalism and sustainability. She also had an extremely clear-eyed view of our technological future and inexorable descent into capitalism as detailed in her 1797 book, Progress and Other Bullshit. Her public execution at the summit of Gibbet Rock for the crime of her prophetic warnings is still one of the darkest and most regrettable moments in the Moor's history. 
But is this not always the way with oracles and mavericks? They make their overblown gatefold concept LPs, write their inaccessible novels, sound their alarms about the future, and we call them oddballs or witches. Strap them to the hind legs of ponies, drag them to high points in the landscape, tie nooses around their necks and cheer as we terminate their lives. Then years later we wonder, were we a bit hasty? Right now, down at the crossroads at Fordley Hollow, another of these mavericks moves about quietly from tree to tree, with a notebook in one hand and a camera in the other. He finds that he works best in the mist. Its cover is a natural aid to the thrust of his poetic expression. His name is the Maverick Arthouse Filmmaker of the Moor. Or, to the few who knew him before he devoted his life to the burning need inside him to create and challenge the status quo, Steve. His bywords are authenticity and surprise. His chief interests are the veritable and the unlikely. But because of this, people have become suspicious of the Maverick Arthouse filmmaker of the Moor. As they go about their daily business, he could at any point be there, hiding in a gorse bush, recording the whole process. Soon, they could find that footage of them buying milk or picking wild garlic has been intercut with rare black and white recordings of the 1968 Paris riots and is being shown without their permission at a prestigious film festival in Central Europe. Endlessly restless and very aware of the fickleness of the industry he has chosen to work in, the Maverick Arthouse filmmaker of the Moor always has at least nine different projects in production. Right now his favourite of these is probably a documentary called Words of Dogs, which involves the Maverick Arthouse filmmaker of the Moor interviewing Benjamin, the ancient border collie who is sat at the crossroads at Fordley Hollow watching the traffic for almost as long as anyone living can remember. But then cutting in reaction shots and replying barks from an entirely different elderly border collie who sits at a similar crossroads in a village on a Greek island. Other works in pre-production include Dirty-Footed Children, a documentary about the secretive burgeoning religious cult who have recently taken over Cuckoo's Nest Farm down by Leather Lane. And then there is A Month and a Day of Wool, in which the maverick arthouse filmmaker of the moor simply plans to implant a camera deep in a sheep's wool for precisely one month and one day, then screen the footage, unchecked and unedited. Down on the level ground, many miles away, those travelling on the road below the moor look across to the high terrain to the north, and the mist makes itself known to them not as mist, but as thick cloud. Who would want to live up there? They ask themselves. The answer is us. We would want to live up here. We like the moor, and we like its mist. We like the way it holds us more firmly in place, the way it creates soft, comforting walls around us and our projects. It locks the moor sounds in, and the outside sounds out. The acoustics of our landscape are different in the mist. They can ping around you from all directions. Birdsong swirls amidst the vapours. You might hear Eleanor the Owl, up by the old lead mine, talking in her sleep about the undead. <coughs> Baby zombies! 
They take babies and turn them into zombies. And it seems like her voice is coming from higher, maybe in the sky itself. But where does the sky begin on a day like today? Does it even exist? A mysterious chanting swirls around the 13 maidens stone circle. Is it the sound of the ghosts who have passed through there over the centuries? Or is it just Woman Davidson and Lord Davidson, the couple who lead the religious cult at Cuckoo's Nest Farm, taking their disciples on an outing? A small, noisy car is heard coming along a lane, flushing blackbirds from the hedgerows. But the car never appears. Outside the parish hall below, where the internet has not yet arrived, disembodied voices swirl around as they shout their community gossip and advertisements into the murk. Baby stroller for sale, one careful lady owner, five pounds. I have not seen my girl Daisy for three weeks now. She left home in a half and went down to Cuckoo's Nest Farm. I am worried her mind is corrupted. Job lot of knitting books. Strictly for adults only. Meet me behind the old pump house. I'll pack him enough sale. Got loads. That's for Ian. Come to the churchyard and see the wild flowers we have planted. I am cold and lonely. Today, you walk at the south edge of the moor, where nature wears a beard and the trees never forget to put on their thermal socks. As you climb into the forgotten forest, the path is redder than usual, as if peat is mixed with the entrails of a thousand men. You pass the old cow trough and brittle furred sticks crumble underfoot. Deep in the trees there is the building that they call Megan's house. The house has no electricity or running water. A family bought it 40 years ago then comprehensively failed to live there. Once when you were bored, you walked to the house and broke in, then played Scrabble in the living room of the house against yourself. You won by 18 points with your record score of all time, but there was nobody there to see it, apart from the other you who you defeated, and who soon became bitter and withdrawn. Today you press on past the house, ignoring it, feeling you are done with it, that it is emblematic of someone you no longer are. Deeper into the woods, the mist returns heavier, like the steam in your stepfather's bathroom. You return to the bathroom in your mind and look for your reflection in the mirror, but you can no longer see yourself. You remember the room well, the way your stepfather decorated it his obsession with unicorns coming irrepressibly to the fore. Each tile featured the same four unicorns huddled in a circle, as if plotting. There was a bigger unicorn on the toilet seat. The taps were horns. He promised you the horns weren't real, even though you once saw a maggot crawling out of a crack in one of them. Your mother listened patiently in the living room as he repeated his suspicions and theories, such as his strong belief that horses were living half of their true life. He was a hard man, relentlessly critical. Act your age, not your shoe size, he told you, 
which seemed particularly unfair as you were five years old at the time and wore a nine and a half. On the lower ground, as the mist clears slightly, you begin to see the corners of sheds and bothies and shacks poke out of it. Forgotten, neglected buildings, redolent of smoke and minor apocalypse. From a leaning metal building shaped like a pepper pot, a man emerges dressed in clothes that give total mystery to his body shape. He introduces himself and begins to walk alongside you. Something you can't place immediately seems wrong about him. He says he is a struggling antique dealer who has travelled here through an industrial time portal from 30 years in the past to receive insights about the surprising objects people now find valuable. Is this one of them? He says, handing you an undistinguished white teacup. Please tell me the truth. You reach a house with large ornamental gates and tell him it is where you live and say you have to go now, giving him directions to the nearest auction room. But the house is not yours, so instead you pass through the gate and hide in the garden, waiting until the sound of the antique dealer's footsteps has disappeared. Surprisingly, the damp ground comforts you, and, tired, you decide it is a natural place to conclude your walk and sleep for a while. Three miles to the north, at the top of a steep mossy ravine, Roger Benson is tired from walking as well. He has negotiated long, steep paths above the river, climbed past Bloody Nose Tor, then climbed past it again, then climbed past it a further five times, having been spun around in the mist and disorientated by the piskies. He could have made it so much easier for himself by turning his pockets out, but he didn't want to do that, since one of his pockets contained something important, something that represents the whole point of his journey. Weary, he knocks on the door of the large Gothic building in front of him. After a long delay in which he hears a slowly rising tone of hard shoes on flagstones, it is opened by a tall lady in a habit with a severe nose. Can I help you? she asks. Yes, I am here to see Nancy, says Roger Benson. There is nobody of that name here, says the nun, beginning to shut the door. Are you quite sure about that? says Roger, reaching suavely into his pocket and revealing a heart-shaped piece of granite. Absolutely, says the nun. And why are you waving a piece of stone at me? As he descends the ravine, away from the convent, Roger Benson strives for a philosophical outlook on the day's fruitless endeavours. He did not expect his quest to be easy, as the pursuit of true love rarely is. He will not be so easily deterred, he decides, and he will return. He is a man who has learned to trust his hunches. Once, he drove 73 miles to a town he'd never previously visited, just because he had a gut feeling some nice second-hand wind chimes would be for sale there. And he was correct. He will bide his time. His mission will clearly take more research. Back at the convent, Sister Agnes Price Haggard closes the door on the day's unwanted disturbance and returns to work. Stones, she mutters to herself. My whole life is stones. Everywhere I look. Prioress Marianne has announced she wants the extension of the convent completed in less than a month and there is still much to do. 
Even with 23 of her team of nuns working 14-hour days lugging granite, she is not confident the deadline will be met. The mist has made the work even more difficult, with nuns often crashing into each other painfully. Just last night, Sister Wendy Hinchcliffe collided with Sister Nancy Daly while carrying a particularly large stone for the south wall, with Sister Nancy Daly being left unconscious for more than half an hour afterwards. The recent influx of visitors has slowed the process further, distracting Sister Agnes from her duties as Site 4 person. The strange alcoholic just now, waggling his pebble. And the busker two days ago, with the cheek to ask if he could use some of the rooms as free rehearsal space, then, when she refused, trying to guilt her into changing her mind by telling her about his dead twin. As he left, he sang a song about dogs, saying it was for a documentary. She didn't like the song, yet she now finds its innate catchiness lingers in her head. Dogs! Of the Mist. If you looked at it from that road below the moor, would you suspect that all this was going on inside it? Would you suspect that it was a place where great, challenging, experimental art was made? Where ambitious, architectural masterpieces were being erected using locally sourced materials? Where old love was rekindled, searched out and fought for? where nightbirds dreamed about the offspring of the walking deceased, where catchy pop songs were written every day. No, you would not. You'd just think it was some clouds obscuring some fields and rivers where not much was happening. Back when he was growing up, when he ventured off the moor, the maverick arthouse filmmaker of the moor was told that it was only by travelling into the wider world and networking with the right people that he would achieve his goals. He is glad now that he did not listen. The moor is his poetic garden and his secret weapon. He will never run out of projects here. He remembers this as he conducts the day's round of interviews with Benjamin the Border Collie by the crossroads at Fordley Hollow. On the opposite side of the lane, under the cover of the mist, Gwyneth Ridgemore walks past on the way to the village bakery. She knows the maverick arthouse filmmaker of the moor is there, and she is wary of him, and has been, ever since the time he surreptitiously filmed her manning a fabric stall at a charity craft market, soundtracked it with 1930s recordings of elderly survivors of the American Civil War talking about their lives, and submitted it to an arts funding organisation. She passes by briskly, and then, when she is gone, when man and dog are alone, something extraordinary happens. The dog begins to speak in a human voice. He begins to talk about his life, about everything he has seen, about the way he feels towards his owners, about what it truly feels like to be a border collie. And the maverick arthouse filmmaker of the moor is there, with his camera and his microphone to record it all. It is a moment of vindication, a slap in the face to all the naysayers he has met along the way while building his body of work. Yes, 
the maverick arthouse filmmaker of the moor thinks, looking at the thick, slightly sparkly air all around him. This, this is where I belong, and it always will be. This podcast was written and performed by Tom Cox. Additional voices were provided by Ben Tallamy and Catherine Drake. It was produced and edited by Ellie McKechnie. Music was provided by Dimorphodons and Tom Cox.